This is the Depth and Light Podcast. I'm J.D. Bertel. Our conversation today is with author and educator Alfie Cohn. Alfie has written and lectured extensively in the areas of education, parenting, and human behavior. His work has challenged the status quo in education for over four decades. In our conversation, Alfie discusses his thoughts on popular education topics like grit, growth mindset, and ed tech. Teaching is one of the most difficult and rewarding professions. Think of a teacher you might have had who made an impression on you. Perhaps that impression was positive. They introduced you to what would become a lifelong passion or pursuit, or encouraged you at just the right time, or appeared moved by something you had written or painted. Or maybe the impression was a negative one, and the effect was similarly long-lasting. Like any profession, there is a wide spectrum of ability and extremely varied methodology amongst teachers of any ilk. When I first started teaching, I sought to emulate the best teachers from my years in school, from preschool all the way through graduate school. But I also made a lot of mistakes along the way. I thought that each assignment should be graded, I sometimes mistook an intense workload for academic rigor, and I often didn't properly communicate what was expected in each project to my students. Luckily, I had colleagues all around me who were masterful teachers, and who gently guided me toward the work of people like Maria Montessori, Jean Piaget, Seymour Papert, and Alfie Cohn. I immediately resonated with what Montessori, Piaget, and Papert had to say, but often Alfie Cohn's writing left me with more questions than answers. Some of Cohn's ideas, like collective learning, seemed natural and fit with what I intuitively thought about how we learn. But some of his ideas seemed radical and impossible to implement. But the more I read of Alfie Cohn's work, the more I agreed with. No matter how radical or idealistic, his notions about grades, competition, and student agency feel natural. The way things should be what we should strive for as educators. Coming up, my conversation with Alfie Cohn. Alfie, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. My pleasure. Um, you know, you wrote that an awful lot of schooling still consists of making kids cram forgettable facts into short-term memory. Many schools, even ones with considerable resources, call what they do progressive education, yet they still primarily focus on memorization and test prep. Why do you think so many schools subsist on that model? Um, It's hard to break for a number of reasons. One is just because that's how it's always been done in most schools, and it always takes ingenuity and insight and courage to do something different, particularly when those around you aren't. It's also challenging, I think, because a number of people fear what's represented by the alternative to that, which involves more trust in and respect for students. Um, for letting their interests and questions guide the curriculum uh, for deep understanding. Um, And that's tough. It also means 
um, letting go of control to a large extent. Mm -hmm. A traditional facts or skills-based curriculum, uh, particularly when taught with traditional pedagogy consisting of lectures and worksheets and quizzes and homework and um, uh, textbooks, all of this is... Um, it keeps the adult comfortably in control, mm-hmm. um, and it's, that's tough. Um, I, I suppose the last although, uh, uh, factor I'd mention, though there are probably others as well, is that it, it takes much more skill to be a progressive educator. I mean, to, to put it crudely, any idiot can stay a chapter ahead of the kids. Mm-hmm. Or, or read a lecture, you know, from a yellow legal pad that may not have been yellow when the notes were first written on it, you know, mm-hmm. and, then, and then evaluate the kids based on how many facts they've memorized. That doesn't require much from a teacher, intellectually speaking, putting aside the question of the psychological need for control, mm-hmm. um, to to help kids explore ideas to make sense of, 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 of things from the inside out. It takes much more from a teacher, um, including a deeper understanding of the content of the learning to say nothing of the pedagogical skills required to figure out when to step in and when to back off, how to help kids collaborate, how to offer some parameters, but otherwise allow kids to decide, that's tough. And so yet, that's yet another reason why the far less demanding uh, per, uh, traditional model persists. I mean, I think that that leads to a lot of school administrators and educators to, you know, they spend a lot of time on assessment and, and, and fretting about assessment. Um, what do you think are the best alternatives to traditional assessment in the classroom that you see out there today? Um, well, there's, there's a whole, there's shelves of books on authentic assessment. Um, sadly, now the word assessment is sometimes used by educators as a euphemism for just tests, mm-hmm. suggesting an inability to understand that tests are just one subset of possible assessment strategies and not a particularly useful one. And it, it's sort of... Um, uh, constricts the discussion prematurely um, mm-hmm. when you talk about that. You know, what kind of test should we have, or or how many multiple choice questions, or how often should we give these tests? Whether we're talking about teacher-designed classroom tests or standardized tests as a matter of public policy, in both cases, when you ask what kind of test should be you know, formative or summative? Should it be um, norm-referenced or criterion-referenced? Who sh- when should it be delivered? By what company? Whenever we ask that question, how should we test, it's sort of like, like saying, um, you know, whose car should we take to get to the park today, yours or mine? Mm-hmm. Um, rather than asking, how should we get to the park today? The broader question suggests the possibility we might walk or bicycle or take public transit. All those things are ruled out. So um, how else can we assess? Well, we have research for going back more than half a century showing that the best t- 
teachers by various criteria almost never give tests to their students, um, in part because tests measure what matters least, but also because good teachers don't need tests because they're getting a constant stream of information Mm -hmm. from what the kids are doing that shows who needs help and when kids didn't get it, and how to restructure stuff. But you have to be an amazing teacher with kids engaged in project-based, student-designed forms of learning, where while they're learning, you're learning about what they understand and where they, they need assistance. So you never need to have a rich, meaningful, interdisciplinary, collaborative project where kids are understanding the ideas and, and being pushed to a more sophisticated level of, of cognitive achievement. You never need to stop after that and say, okay, take everything off your desks. It's time for a test. That would be superfluous. Mm-hmm. It would be redundant. You've got what you need. But... If you don't have that kind of rich, meaningful, progressive teaching going on, if you're mostly lecturing at kids or having them fill out worksheets, you have no idea about their thinking because you haven't been giving them the opportunity to do thinking. And so you think, well, of course, you need a test. How else would I know? Mm -hmm. And so many teachers have, in addition to watching the projects, they have kids do some sort of uh, culminating a special project, some kind of performance assessment where they show not only what they know, but what they can do with what they know. You know, that might look like kids who are taking a story they've been reading and turning it into a TV script or a poem or some other genre, Mm -hmm. or kids studying a foreign language, and then instead of a test, they open a little restaurant, you know, a pretend restaurant in Spain or in France, Uh, with a menu that's designed for people who enjoy different kinds of cuisine, or Mm -hmm. they put their science and math skills to to the uh, idea of, I don't know, uh, I I once heard of a teacher who uh, deputized the kids as crime scene investigators Mm -hmm. for a carefully staged accident where the kids had to figure out what happened, showing how physics and mathematical uh, 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 concepts are applied. You know, there's a range of ways to do this. And then also there's a way of just collecting thoughtfully kids' uh, assignments in a portfolio, the way professional architects and artists do to actually show what they've done. But again, you can't do a portfolio if kids are just filling out worksheets because then they haven't done anything worth putting in a portfolio. So before you ask the question of what does the alternative assessment look like, you have to ask, what does the teaching look like? It has to be rich in order for the um, assessment to be authentic. Sure, and that kind of goes back to what you said about you know it, it, it taking more skill, and it's it's probably more time consuming to you know do project based learning than it is to just do chalk and talk and lecture to the kids and then give them worksheets and tests. So um, time yep. commitment is another uh, uh, sounds like another problem that teachers have with this. Yes, probably true. Um, changing gears just a little bit, uh, when writing about ed tech um, a few years ago, you stated that your position on whether or not to use technology in the classroom is it depends. What do you really? What do you think it depends on to do 
developmentally appropriate and effective use of technology in the classroom? Um, it depends on your intellectual goal with kids. What is it you're looking for? Mm-hmm. Are you having kids construct meaning, or are you merely having them practice skills and memorize facts in a vacuum? If, if you no decision about technology should be made until you're clear what it is you think school is for. So it gets back to the first question you asked me. If the point is just to memorize facts, well, sure. In that case, let's pretend we have an innovative classroom by, you know, uh, putting the corporate written textbook on an iPad. Mm-hmm. Or let's, let's have kids pull facts out of the Internet and then share them on Google Docs. Or let's have some cutesy smart board, you know, with all sorts of bells and whistles. All of those things are just ways of cementing into place a traditional top-down teacher-centered fact-based approach to teaching. They do nothing to help kids become thinkers, let alone to truly get a kick out of exploring ideas. But if your goal is not just to memorize facts, but to have kids understand ideas from the inside out, playing with words and numbers and concepts, then you would do you would probably leave in the dust all this stuff that makes a lot of profit for uh, Silicon Valley companies that mm-hmm. require screens and apps and cutesy toys and so on, because those aren't really designed for thinking. They're designed to to um, make people excited who love tech and designed to bring in profit for those companies. In that case, you would have to apply the question much more thoughtfully, what forms of technology might help, though they wouldn't be critical, Mm -hmm. um, to helping kids construct meaning and become makers. And there are some thinkers and writers on this topic who have suggested, I think, credibly, that there are ways of using technology where the kids are in control, where they're doing things collaboratively, not just alone, and where it's helping them to um, to understand ideas, uh, maker projects, and so on, I think can be useful in that regard. Yeah, I mean, you know, speaking of the maker movement, I mean, it really has captured the interest of so many educators, students, and even parents. And so many schools are adding maker spaces and maker curriculum to the school day. I mean, do you see these as beneficial additions to school and kind of the type of ed tech that is for constructing knowledge? Uh, I would give a... Uh tentative yes to that from what I've seen, though I'm sure there are better and worse ways, more and less thoughtful ways of actually doing it, Mm -hmm. depending on the number of options available to students, the way that it is or is not integrated into the rest of the curriculum, um, the extent to which it's used to encourage active collaboration rather than each kid doing his or her own stuff in a vacuum, Mm -hmm. um, and how much say the kids have about the whole process. So, yeah, it can be done better or worse, but um, I find it promising. So it really is about, it, it, it could be that same shiny wrapper that EdTech has, in, you know, that you were talking about before, but if done properly, if student-centered, if um, with lots of options and kind of more open-ended, it can be a positive thing, in your opinion. Uh, I think so. Yeah, that's my take. I mean, that's true of other things, too, like project-based learning, which has uh, enjoyed a, 
a certain surge in popularity in the last few years, but I've also seen it done badly where it's doing stuff from a kit and the project is basically designed for the kit, not by the kit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's true of any number of things. Um, you know, yeah, it's probably a step forward, but let's be careful about why we're doing it and how we're doing it and who makes the decision. Sure. Um, I think anybody, you know, who's been in education for a few years and certainly for several decades, and you've written about this a lot, you know, there are kind of phrases and concepts that are, you know, not necessarily trends, but kind of rise and fall. One of them that you've written about is growth mindset. And it, it continues to be a phrase and a concept that's repeated everywhere in education. Um, in addition to your criticisms of Carol Dweck turning the concept into a commodity, you pointed out that specific structural arrangements at school have to change or no mindset will be the panacea that educators are hoping for. What, can you talk a little bit about those structural arrangements that need to change? Uh, well, they basically recapitulate what you and I have just talked about now for the last few minutes. Um, questions of who makes the decisions about assessment, about pedagogy, how we teach, and curriculum, what we teach. All of those things are important. I mean, I have a piece on this that your listeners may be interested in if they resonate to the concept of, uh, of growth mindset. It's called the mindset mindset. Mm-hmm. And just by Googling those three words, I think you'll land on it, or you can go through my website. Sure. But, I mean, I conclude the piece by saying that Carol Dweck and other proponents of, of terms like growth mindset uh, seem to think that when you give a kid a worksheet, what you're looking for is a kid who says, Gosh, darn it, with enough effort, I'll bet I can succeed at this. Whereas my response is that what we should be getting from kids is, why does anybody have to do this crap? Mm-hmm. You know, the very idea of a mindset suggests that the attitude or orientation of the individual is the problem, and we need to train kids to attribute their success or failure to effort rather than ability. Well, there may be some truth to that, and I'm certainly not arguing for um, the opposite of a growth mindset, which Dweck has characterized in different ways, where you basically think, I'm either smart or I'm dumb. Yeah, I agree. That's not particularly uh, uh, promising. Uh, and there is research to show that things work out worse when when kids think they have no choice over over outcomes. But the far more important question is what kids have been given to do. Mm-hmm. Most stuff in traditional schools isn't worth putting effort into. And the more you focus on concepts like growth mindset or grit or mindfulness, the less likely you are to ask those bigger, uncomfortable questions about curriculum and pedagogy, about the system. Because by definition, growth mindset is all about the attitude that the individual kid takes to whatever she's been given to do. Mm-hmm. No wonder teachers love it. The more you're focusing on things like growth mindset and self-regulation, the less you have to question and improve your craft. Mm-hmm. So it's really kind of putting the onus, that kind of puts the onus unfairly on the child to determine, yeah. you know, or just to, to determine what's, what we should be doing or what best practices are. Uh, it's, it's putting the onus on the kid to develop the right attitude rather than our thinking about what our best practices are. Yeah. 
I, you know, you mentioned grit a second ago, and I was, you know, reading some of the things you've written about grit, um, you know, made that concept really, and that word really made famous by Angela Duckworth. But one of the things that uh-huh. you talked about that I had never even considered, and I've heard grit, I've used that word in the classroom, and I've heard it everywhere in education, but you talk about how it will encourage kids to kind of grin and bear it through out- outmoded educational models. I mean, do you think there's situations where, or there, there's expressions of grit that are positive, or is it all kind of just encouraging this negative? Never give up mindset that can be really destructive. Um, I I certainly don't want kids to throw in the towel at the first sign of difficulty. I mean, I think persistence can be one of many useful uh, features or uh, characteristics that we bring to bear on things that we do if they're worth doing. Mm-hmm. But Duckworth doesn't seem to care whether they're worth doing, or rather assumes that once authority figures demand that you do it, then the question is, how do we, how do we make you um, pay attention and stick with it? So, yeah, sometimes it's good. Other times, as you've pointed out that I had mentioned, it's a far more rational and constructive approach to say, this isn't working, or I no longer I'm deriving any joy from this. Let's Mm -hmm. cut losses and move on. Um, But, you know, the interesting thing about persistence is it doesn't feel like a a separate quality is necessary to import or learn when you're doing something that gives you pleasure, Mm -hmm. that you take, that, that, that you're passionate about. I mean, that's certainly true in my life and the life of people I know that when, when you really get a kick out of, out of playing with this, well, with whatever it is that you're doing or learning, you, you don't. It doesn't feel like a forced effort at persistence. It feels like you want to keep going. So the very fact that we are giving kids many tasks to do, where we then have to say you need to develop grit so you don't give up, that may be a red flag in itself that there could be a problem with the tasks mm-hmm. or or at least with whether kids have any meaningful say about what they're doing and under what conditions. So once again, like, like the concept of growth mindset, um, you have to ask the Latin question, cui bono, which means who benefits? Whose interest does it serve when you are highlighting concepts like grit and, uh, and growth mindset? It sure isn't the kids. Yeah, I was uh, recently reading James Carson's 1986 book, Finite and Infinite Games, and I was really interested in the two kind of scenarios he he puts forth that, you know, finite games have rules, boundaries, there are winners and losers, and in infinite infinite games, it's non-competitive and ever-changing, and the sole purpose is really just to continue the game. Um, and, you know, he talks about the, you know, finite games promote winning at all costs, huge egos, infighting, whereas infinite games promote harmony. Would you say that most American schools operate as finite games? Uh, based on that dichotomy, which I'm hearing for the first time, yes, I would think so. Um, and it raises a larger question about uh, putting aside the, the concept of, of games and how we want to stretch that term to make it apply here. Mm-hmm. Um it is certainly the case that one of the other features, uh, dreadful features of American education in particular, is competition, setting mm-hmm. up artificial scarcity so I can succeed only if you fail. So that's the only thing worse than, than totally individualizing learning. So everybody's each is on his or her separate desk responsible for 
my own learning and not connected to others or feeling part of a community. The only thing worse than than that kind of isolation and uh, exaggerated emphasis on self-sufficiency is a competitive arrangement where our fates are negatively linked. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, that's, I mean, that was my very first book a long time ago, was the destructive effects of competition, not only at school, but at work, at home, and at play. Um, excellence, it turns out, according to research, actually requires the absence of competition in most tasks, contrary to what we're raised to take on faith, which is that you know, competition motivates people to do their best, which turns out to be false. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, another another often repeated thing is the four C's in education, critical thinking, communication, collaboration, and creativity. Do you feel like a competitive environment? I mean, I, you know, I think that you've written that it's not really natural for us to compete, um, humans to compete, but do you think that a competitive environment prevents some of those four C's that people see as so important? Uh, yeah, first of all, I'm not saying it's unnatural for humans to compete. I'm saying sure. it's no more natural to compete than it is to not compete uh, okay. um, or, or to collaborate. All of those characteristics, all of those strategies are within our repertoire. It's not uh, more natural to compete than it is to, re- to do things with people or apart from people. Mm-hmm. So let's go over those C's again. It's the opposite of collaboration, so. Clearly, that's the is, is you know that's death. The only version of collaboration that's permitted in a competitive environment is let's us work together as a group in order to triumph over other groups, so that collaboration then becomes a means and victory is the end. Mm-hmm. Research shows that the most effective arrangement is one where people collaborate within and among groups, mm-hmm. and there's no aspect in which I have to step on your face in order to do well myself. Um, Does it undermine uh, creativity, uh, critical thinking, and what was the last one? Uh, Communication. Communication, yes. Yes to all three. And in fact, I'm rattling off in my own head now specific studies that I reviewed in my book, No Contest, confirming that those things are in fact undermined. For example, research has found that when kids are put into a competitive situation and adults, they tend to communicate with others much less effectively and less fully, which is rational. Why would I tell you everything I know if your success comes at the price of my failure? Just as competition also undermines perspective taking, which means looking at the world from perspectives other than my own, getting outside myself, it undermines helpfulness generosity, mm-hmm. um, trust, um, and healthy self-esteem. But it also undermines, yes, critical thinking and, um, and creativity. In fact, research finds that the more challenging the task, the more it requires higher-order thinking or ingenuity, the worse people tend to do in a competitive arrangement, particularly as contrasted with a collaborative arrangement. Interesting. Yeah, you. I've uh, and some more of your of your writing that I've been reading. You know, you you promote cooperative learning as an alternative to competition based classrooms. I mean, what are some of the best practices for that? What what do you? How do you see people implementing that in the most positive way um, in classrooms? Yeah. Um, 
Well, there's, uh, that's, an, again, another example of how what, something can be done that seems promising in better or worse uh, ways. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the last thing, the, the way you would not want to do cooperative learning is, um, or among the ways you would not want to do it, are first, having groups compete. Um, second, having grades or point systems that offer doggy biscuits for cooperative success which undermines, by virtue of being an extrinsic inducement, most of the intellectual and social benefits of collaboration. But then again, grades and other rewards poison everything they touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's another whole conversation, not only cooperative learning. Um, a third thing you wouldn't want to do is just leave the curriculum intact and give kids worksheets to do or say, you know, read chapter 17 of the book and do the odd number of questions, but do it in your teams. Mm-hmm. This is what one re- researcher calls the hamburger helper model of cooperative learning. You do the same kind of traditional facts and skills garbage, but now you try to dress it up and make it a little more fun by having kids do it together. Um, so the richest models of collaborative learning are based on constructing meaning and also having kids decide which projects they're interested in and dividing them up by their interest, you know, um, so that they join with others to figure out how best to go about this together. Sometimes kids who are unaccustomed to this, you know, having been told to keep their eyes on their own paper um, and so on, uh, may need some help in learning how to cooperate. You can't just assume they know how to do it well. Uh, they may need some some reminders regarding social skills. You know, making mm-hmm. eye contact or how to how to criticize someone's ideas gently um, and so on. And it also may require some thoughts about how you structure the the uh, the cooperative arrangement so everyone participates and uh, depends on everyone else. So yes, better and worse ways to do it, but it's it it it's there's a huge body of research by now showing that when it's done well, uh, cooperative learning is far more effective at helping kids become excited about learning to do it well, regardless of whether they're high, medium, or low ability, mm-hmm. um, and to develop social uh, social skills and dispositions of of being more favorably inclined toward other kids, including kids from different uh, genders and ethnic backgrounds. Sure. I mean, I feel like the abstract of grades has been use, is useful because it's simple, um, but it's obviously has a lot of negative um, consequences. And, you know, we if schools do a good job, even K through 12, with, you know, not necessarily grading kids, maybe, you know, doing something that's more reflective and helps them demonstrate what knowledge they've created. It's interesting that they eventually, even if they do work in groups in K through 12, they eventually take the SAT or the ACT by themselves. And what colleges are looking at mainly is these scores and these grades. Um, what, I mean, what is a different, like, theoretical model, model we could use from three years old all the way up through graduate school, as opposed to just letter grades and these uh, standardized tests? Uh, well, I talked briefly before about standardized tests, so um, maybe, maybe I'll leave that aside, although I will point out that now more than 1,000 four-year colleges and universities in the United States have stopped requiring the SAT and ACT. Oh, wow. That is no longer a fact of life, uh, happily. Um, 
because the colleges realize that, like other standardized tests, it mostly reflects family income. Um, anyway, uh, as for grades, yes, that's that's another interesting topic. What the research shows about grades, uh, and there's been quite a number of studies done where kids are randomly divided into two groups. Uh, they all get the same assignment, but half of them are told this counts for a grade, and the others uh, are pursuing the task without any grade having been mentioned. Mm-hmm. And this kind of research has been done from elementary school up until college. And the robust findings are threefold. When students are doing something for a grade, first, they tend to lose interest in that topic. They're less likely to go back to it on their own time or report it as being engaging to them. As far as I know, every study that has ever compared a graded to an ungraded condition and looked at the effect on intrinsic motivation has found a negative effect from from grading. Mm. Second, kids who are being graded uh, tend to pick the easiest possible task if they're given a choice, not because they're lazy or lack growth mindset, but because they're being rational, you know, duh. If the goal is to get an A, of course, I'm going to pick the shortest book mm-hmm. or the most familiar topic for my project, because you told me the point in this room is not, you know, intellectual risk-taking. It's to get a good grade, and that means I'm going to reduce my risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we turn around and blame the kid for not making enough effort. When it's perfectly reasonable response uh, on their part. And the third effect of grades is... Um, that kids who are doing something for a grade tend to remember what they've learned for a shorter period of time and tend to think in a more superficial way. So Mm -hmm. it actually undermines thinking. So the alternative to letter and or number grades, I might might add that rubrics tend to intensify the damage Mm. by offering more numerical evaluations on more criteria, thereby compounding all the reasons that grades, letter grades, are, are, are destructive. Um, so the alternative is, of course, no grades. Then the question becomes, how do you report out to students and their parents how things are going mm-hmm. without a report card? And there's a good way, and there's a better way. The good way is a narrative report where you qualitatively describe what you've noticed with the student rather than reducing the kid to a letter or a number. Mm -hmm. The better way is a conversation, a conference. That's better because there's at least the theoretical possibility of it's being a dialogue. Mm -hmm. Even a narrative is still a monologue. And so there's a back and forth, and you have student-driven conferences where the student, the teacher, and the parent are all together, which can be truly remarkable when it's done well. But the important thing is those conferences must replace grades, not be added to them, just as portfolios must replace grades, not be used to yield a number, Mm -hmm. just as narrative reports must be uh, offered instead of grades. Several studies have found that when you do a written comment and a letter grade, you don't get any benefit. Mm-hmm. You only get the benefit when you eliminated the letter or number grade. So uh, you, you write a lot about parenting. I mean, is there, are there things that parents can do to um, ch- like change their, their mindset or their attitude 
um, about grades that maybe will facilitate or make teachers more comfortable with giving that conversation, that dialogue as the, the summative kind of assessment or, you know, the, the grade, as it were? Uh, well, parents who are pushing for better grades are typically doing that because that's the only kind of evaluation they've been given, and that's all they know. And when teachers complain about parents wheedling and negotiating and complaining or pushing their kids too hard or whatever, I mean, that's don't blame the parents. They can't be pushing for a better grade if the school has enough sense not to give grades in the first place, mm-hmm. much less you know, make things worse by posting the grades online so they're even more salient and do that much more damage. Um, So long as grades exist, and I do not treat it as a fact of life, because many schools have moved away from grades, it can be done, and that should be our primary goal, not merely stopgap measures to minimize the damage in the meantime. Mm -hmm. Um, But if we are thinking about the meantime, then both the teacher and the parent should be doing everything possible to make grades as invisible as possible for as long as possible to the students. Uh, So that means for a parent to ignore report cards and talk with your kids about what they're learning, not how well the teacher thinks they're learning it, Mm -hmm. particularly in the younger grades. And for the teacher, if I, even if the teacher has to give a grade at the end, um, many, many teachers are figuring out how to ungrade or degrade their classrooms in the meantime by saying, even if I have to turn in a grade for you at the end of the term, I will never put a letter or number on any assignment you do. Because if I do that, I'm part of the problem. And many teachers let kids pick their own final grade, too. Mm-hmm. Um, which takes a remarkable amount of trust and has a remarkably positive effect, first of all because of the trust and respect it shows, but also because it it totally removes the destructive effect of doing something to get a good grade. A student who is learning mostly in order to do well on a test and get a good grade has a totally different mindset one could even say an anti-intellectual mindset, um, as opposed to a kid who's doing it for the learning itself. And that's what we need to do, What do what we can as parents and teachers, but mostly work together, parents, teachers, and administrators, to change the features of the system that make it hard instead of easier to teach in the best possible way. Yeah, one thing that I, I've noticed a lot, and I think it's a yet another thing that has um, drifted kind of from Silicon Valley to education, and I've used it myself to, you know, um, some positive and some not so positive effects in the classroom are digital badging, these micro credentials. Um, do you think those are grades in just another form, or are, is there some positive um, outcome of doing these micro credentials that really recognize um, knowledge that's been been attained or experience that's been attained with like say a 3d printer or something like that uh, I think it depends partly on how it's done but I'm I'm skeptical about whether it's really necessary um, if the kid knows that something has been produced here in this maker lab uh, that this project has been completed successfully you know you don't 
the kid really doesn't need the the, the doggy biscuit for for having done it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's very very easy for that to turn into an extrinsic inducement where it becomes a large part of the point. I have to do this in order to get that badge or recognition. Mm-hmm. And as soon as learning is turned into a means to a to another end, uh, that undermines its value and the quality of the thinking that goes into it. Because now I'm thinking, all right, what, what else do I have to do to get this badge? And it puts a ceiling on the accomplishment. Mm-hmm. That's all I have mm-hmm. to do. Whereas it's open-ended, or to use the language of your author, infinite, um, when kids are doing it for its own sake. So I don't really see the need for that. And it's particularly worrisome that a lot of people talking about these badges often slip into some form of gamification, mm-hmm. um, where where it's just explicitly about, like, training pets, and it's manipulative, and, you know, if we know... If we know one thing about all such rewards or worse contests, it's that uh, the more you're rewarded for doing something, the more you come to lose interest in whatever you had to do to get the reward. Mm-hmm. That's a tragedy in its own right because it, it means that uh, curiosity is evaporating before our eyes, but also from a bottom line perspective, it's bad news because when interest leaves, excellence tends to... Uh, accompanied out the door. Wow. Yeah. Well, Alfie, I want to say thank you so much again for taking the time to talk to me. And I think this is just an amazing conversation. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it as well. Thanks for listening to the Depth and Light podcast. Thanks again to Alfie Cohn. If you like this or other episodes, please consider telling a friend about the podcast and leaving a review wherever you listen. Also, if you have show ideas or general feedback, reach out to us at info at depthandlight.com. That's info at depthandlight.com.